I'm Josh Cooperman. This is Convo by Design. You've heard from many set decorators on the podcast before. I enjoy speaking to set decorators for a number of reasons, not the least of which is their MacGyver-like skills. The great ones possess a superpower for turning one thing into something else for the sake of the script. Another skill is looking at a page or text and creating a design space based on nothing but that. Designers and architects do this every day by channeling and deciphering the needs and wishes of their client. Now, imagine there's no conversation, only the printed page. In contrast, there's also no actual homeowner, chef, owner, or client complaining that the cerulean blue just isn't the right shade. That's true. You've heard from William DiBiazio before, but this is the first time he and I have had the opportunity to sit together for a long conversation. One specifically about the business of dressing a set for imaginary people. DiBiazio has been a set decorator for some time, and you've seen his work on Pretty Little Liars, Famous in Love, Crank, Ray Donovan, Melrose Place, Gossip Girl, and Skyscraper, and elsewhere. Decorating a set is not that different from designing a home. I find it really interesting in the process that many set decorators use to build characters from which to design a set. It's very similar to the process many of the world's most successful interior designers deconstruct their clients in order to design for them. Enjoy this episode of Convo by Design with set decorator William DiBiazio. And if you like what you hear, and I hope that you do, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a note and a five-star rating. It helps new listeners find the podcast. Thanks. Convo by Design is presented by Snyder Diamond. Always first with what's next in the kitchen and bath. Snyder Diamond is a family-owned and operated company that serves the Southern California design and architecture community as well as discriminating homeowners through remarkable customer service and a curated offering of kitchen and bath appliances, fixtures, and finishes. The products at Snyder Diamond include the industry's best, like the full line of Mila appliances. Mila, a family-owned and operated company offering industry-leading products since 1899. This includes a full line of refrigerators, ovens, steamers, cooktops, wine units, coffee machines, dishwashers, ventilation hoods, washers and dryers. All of these products are made using the highest standards in manufacturing and industry-leading technology to provide a superior class of appliance. Form, function, and future. That's Mila. Pair that with the standard bearer when it comes to customer service, and Snyder Diamond delivers dreamy kitchens that exceed expectations. If that's not enough, right now and for a very limited time, Mila is offering some amazing and very generous rebates and offers. For details on these and to see the full line of Mila products, visit any of the three Southern California Snyder Diamond locations or visit online at SnyderDiamond.com. When was the last time we've spoken? It's been a while. It's been a while. We were supposed to do this, I believe, last October. Yeah. Um, and I had a wedding to go to back in Connecticut. Um, my nephew got married, and so I was unable to, to visit and chat with you then. Yeah. No, I'm glad we get to do this now. So, I love Lucy. Lucille Ball. Love her. You're a fan. Always have been. Why? Um, it made me laugh as a kid. And an interesting thing is I know that when um, 
the episodes pertained to Lucy redecorating her apartment or rearranging her apartment, those were the episodes that I loved the most. But to this day, uh, if I put it on, even though I know every episode and I've seen every episode, uh, it makes me laugh. So when, what was the first show that you worked on? What was your first job in the business? My very first job in the business was a movie called, mm, oh gosh, uh, Catfish and Black Bean Sauce. <laughs> Obscure. A little bit. Obscure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when, what was your role on that, on that project? I was, uh, I was, uh, I was everything other than the production designer. So it's really interesting. Here's what I've noticed in, in talking to set decorators. I love talking to set decorators. The way that you started in the business, I don't know that there are any two that have a similar experience in getting started in the business. And what I love is because each show is so different, each project is so different, there is no one else that has your same experience which I think is fascinating. You become experts on what you are doing while you are doing it. Yeah. And then you move on to another project and there may be things that carry over. Yeah. But uh, you need to look at it with fresh eyes and envelop and wrap, your, wrap yourself around who those characters are and what their world is and how they live. So each time you do it, it's different. It is different. Um, what's also interesting that I've noticed, and tell me about this, it seems like set decorators kind of develop a specialty. They develop a, you know, some work on superhero movies, and some work on dramas, and some become known for, you know, working on political because they can dress the White House mm -hmm. the way that they decorate it. Do you, have, do you have something that you've become known for, or is that something that you've tried to avoid? I would say I have not become known for something yet, nor would I want to become known for something. Um, a set decorator's job is to decorate a set, is to, to, to create the space that the actor envelops so that he can, he can play, uh, and you believe it is believable. Uh, and each time you do that, it's different. So whether it's three-camera comedy, uh, one-hour drama, uh, feature work, uh, the job is all the same. The budgets are all different. The commitment to um, how much of your life it is going to envelop is different. But you're, you're still doing the same job. You're telling the story of, you're creating the visual picture of the space that the actors will play in. Well, and here's the other part of that, which I think is so interesting. You are a storyteller, and you have to tell a story without saying a single word. Or using, using any sort of text to tell that story. You really are a, a, a visual storyteller and you're decorating a set for characters whose entire history 
is on a page. That's correct. How do you approach that? How do you approach that the moment you see the script? Uh, the project that I'm going to be starting on shortly that I have not signed a deal memo, so I'm not going to discuss. I received the script yesterday, so I read the pilot. And last night when I was in bed, I found myself thinking about it. It, it starts to become part of my life. Uh, it starts to become, hmm, what is that space going to look like? Where, where can I find that? Where can I find that? Some of the pieces, some of the visuals I may have used before, but you're telling, you're, again, you're telling a story, so you're creating a space that may be the home of someone that in five to eight seconds, the camera is going to pan around and the audience is going to look at that and decide who that person is. They're going to have a visual of who that person is before that actor opens his mouth. So that's my job, to, to immerse the space with the essence of who the character is, having nothing to do with me. It really has, it's important that I, do, I approach everything with an open mind and not look at anything through the filter of, I don't like that because it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with that character and whether that character would like it. What do you do, this is a pedestrian question and I apologize in advance. What do you do when you have a character that you just don't like? And you, might, you have to have them because every show has them. You may not like the character, but there's always going to be something about this the space um, that you can find joy in, in creating the space. Even if it's um, a room that someone's torturing somebody in, um, there can be something fun about, there can be something fun about setting up that very organized, systematic, you're kind of putting, for a, for a period, you're putting yourself into the head of someone who might be a little too deranged and neurotic and obsessed with somebody. Fun with torture. Fun with torture. So, I'm totally changing gears on you. One of the things that I love about what you do as a set decorator and sort of the how it fits into a production is there's kind of this and tell me if I've got this right, that there's kind of like this tradition, it's a tradition, it's a, it's a way of doing business where the set decorator opens the set. Correct. Tell me what it's like for you because I imagine opening a set, and, and basically opening a set means the set's finished, nobody, nobody sees it until you're done, or, or they may come through and see it, but nobody, nobody experiences the set in its completed state until you open it and you make it available. That's, that's correct. And they're seeing it for the first time, mm -hmm. and you're there, you've gotta feel like someone, like an artist who's curated a show, and now you're waiting for the people who are working in the set, your peers, to, <laughs> to, to sort of see it for the first time and take it all in. What's, what, what's that like? Uh, well, it's, um, I, I use the analogy of, it's, 
creating a set for me is, and I use this as an analogy that has nothing to do with something that I can physically do, but it's like giving birth. It's all inside you, and then all of a sudden, it's out there in front of you. Um, and it's all very, it's all very personal. Um, but when there are sets that you can love and expect, and that's the, that's the key word there, you expect a reaction from, and perhaps the best reaction is when the director and the crew walks in and they just go about their business because it's everything that they wanted. Okay. Now, let me back up a second because I'm going to roll with your childbirth scenario. Okay. When a child is birthed, people will walk into the maternity ward and say, oh my gosh, that child is lovely. Look, and 10 fingers and 10 toes. And when a set, you can have a DP walk in and say, strike that, we got to roll dolly track down the middle. Do, nobody ever says, well, yes, the child has 10 fingers and 10 toes, but I only need eight, you know, four on this foot and three on the other. Nobody, nobody says that, but they're saying it to you. And you kind of, there are situations where you've kind of got to fight for your design, for your, for your decoration, for your, for your storytelling, for what you used and where. You've got choices. Do I fight for this? I mean, if it's a dolly track or it's something that has to be done, then yeah, it has to be done. But you know, it's like, I don't like that chair over there. I want this chair over there. Has that happened to you? Uh, that's absolutely happened to me. And there are times where I will stand my ground and, and explain why it's set up the way it is. Uh, and there are other times where I have to, I have to divorce myself from, from the child now and really say, uh, you have all of the elements, now you get to play. Um, because uh, they're, compo they're compositing sp specific shots. I'm looking at it in term terms of the total room. And sometimes uh, something that might be over an actor's left shoulder that is in one position because it matches something on the other side of the room, it's sitting there, but it needs to move eight inches so that it doesn't look like it's growing out of the actor's head. There's, there's, just, there's the reality of storytelling, and I think that's the other part of uh, acknowledging that I'm a set decorator and I'm not an interior decorator or an interior designer. It is, it, you're, you're, you're telling a story, and you're telling a story, and you're also part of a craft and a process. And because of that, once the set is turned over, if there is no reaction, then that means I've really done my job to the point that everyone is just like, oh yeah, it's exactly what I think it's supposed to look like, and I believe that I'm there, and we're off. Um, do, during the seven years of doing Pretty Little Liars, one of the experiences that I would have that would be the oh my God moments were because it was a show with a limited budget. There were oftentimes I was using the same footprint and then redecorating it over and over and over again to do my job, which is to tell the story. But essentially, just like the room that we're in, it's just a box. So you put one more coat of paint on it and then I get to play with the box and it becomes something else. 
and I'm, thank you for bringing up Pretty Little Liars because that's exactly where I was going next. You, you spent seven years working on, on Pretty Little six, Liars. Six and a half. Okay. Yeah. Not every show develops a life off screen in social media. That's correct. In reality. That's correct. Like this one did. That's correct. How did that happen? Um, it happened because the, the early on, the, the young ladies who were the liars um, were interacting with their fan base. And it was one of those moments where social media was exploding at the same time this show um, was taking off. It was eight years ago today, yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, if we check social media, it was eight years ago yesterday that the pilot episode aired. So, and fans were, uh, you know, I happened to notice yesterday there were, there, I read a tweet of someone saying, I'm cleaning up my computer and there's old PLL images on there and I have no, no reason to hold on to them, but I feel like I have to. So there is, there is still the attachment to the characters. Uh, and it was an opportunity where the characters and the audience were able, the actors and the audience were able to interact. And I think there was something that the characters were so believable to the audience that it just mushroomed. And it's also going to get a second life. It is, with it, the perfectionists. Yeah. What do you think of that? Uh, I think it's very exciting. I, I'm, I'm very excited to see what Marlene has come up with. Marlene King, who is the creator of the show and showrunner. In, in a show like Pretty Little Liars, as you approach... So going from season one to season two, from two to three, three to four, and so on, you come into season one you do it a certain way. Do you feel locked to keeping your decoration, the way that you built that, the way you designed that set into the next seasons? Do you sprinkle in changes? Do you do wholesale changes around certain scenarios? How do you incorporate change? Uh, the change is based on the story. And because the show was really always a moments later sort of show, um, the cliffhanger was the girls were locked in a, in, in, a, in a basement somewhere and the beginning of the next season is they're coming out of there. So we, we would literally be at season end because also it was unlike many shows today, uh, it was the, a show that had legs and had a fan base, and we, we as a crew pretty much knew, oh, it's coming back next season. So as a set decorator, I would look at that very, very differently. When I would shop that set, when I would be decorating that set, I would be looking at it like, we're coming back to this. So I need to either own it, or be able to take it out of the Warner Brothers prop house, which was part of a deal where I could um, use the assets of Warner Brothers and I could hold on to them. So then you're not, because there's the pr pr pragmatic side of doing the business and having to make sure that um, it's not going to cost you thousands of dollars 
uh, in additional rental because it's sitting in a storage bin somewhere uh, waiting for its opportunity to shine one more time. <laughs> um, so all of that would have to be taken into consideration. So in a situation like that, where you've got a pretty good indicator that things are going to go from season to season, at what point does it make sense to buy resources, to buy material, or to continue renting? I mean, you want to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to wrap my head around the concept because with having access to a prop house, there, there are numerous prop houses. Correct. There's numerous ways to get your materials. <clears throat> the problem is you can have a sofa that you love this sofa, but then unless you tag it and reserve it, it's going to be gone. But in this case, it's, you had the opportunity to hold. Correct. But if you're holding something for seven seasons, at what point does it make sense to... I don't know. I guess I'm answering my own question in the process because you're, it's not the same necessarily. There would always be there would there would always be practical conversations that would have to happen with producers because um, our sh the show was a flashback sort of show, so you would have to go back to another set that was. Uh, we're now showing you the 30 seconds before or the 45 seconds after that you had never seen before. So you needed the space again, but over time the assets of that that set which when when everything is compacted could be you know could fit on the size of the five by seven rug that we're sitting on uh, in a storage unit but you keep adding up five by seven by five by seven by five by seven and all of a sudden the storage unit is full so then it turns into a okay here's what we have are we going but coming back to these sets these are just those are almost their housekeeping conversations with producers with showrunners with story with the um, the writers are we going to come back to these spaces again because I have these sitting in storage and at a moment's notice you can write to them but if you're not going to then uh, I need the space so I can put this in <laughs> because it be, almost becomes like Legos and you're moving things in and out in little squares where everything is labeled by um, character spaces uh, whether in in that seven year run it was you know, Hannah's bedroom, Emily's bedroom, um, so forth and so on. The branding of a show, especially a show like Pretty Little Liars, and, and the brand that it became, and a, a life in its own right in reruns yes. as well. So you take a show, you know, you're an I Love Lucy fan and a Lucille Ball fan, and you take a show like I Love Lucy, isn't it amazing that you can still see reruns? You can turn on the TV day or night, and there's going to be a rerun of I Love Lucy somewhere on some channel. Correct. Some, what, 60 years later, 50 years later? I mean, that's astounding. Over, over 60 years, yeah. That's astounding. Yeah. But it, it, and they really, they created the rerun? Uh, and part of that is the the genius of Desi Arnaz. He made sure that it was actually put on 35 millimeter film instead of kinescope, um, so that it was available. Um, and uh, as I've as I've read, he just thought they would be really great home movies for the kids, um, for them to see. Um, and then, and because they owned the show, and then they sold the show to CBS, and now CBS owns the rights to it. But Really, other than that, most shows weren't really 
so many shows today um, get to live on because of DVD, because of VHS, because of DVD, because of streaming. They they have a they have infinity to them now. When a decorator was doing a project back then, there no one really no one really thought that they would be watching Bewitched fifty years later. No one really thought that they would be watching you know Mannix or Kojak or we would have we would have networks now. Um, channels that you can go to that just what just just air these shows. Okay, wait wait a minute. Besides me, who's watching Kojak? Uh, um, people probably who are uh, <laughs> our age or a little older. You know, it's funny. I I will I will I came across an Adam Twelve episode and I became completely transfixed because it was all out on location and it was all the San Fernando Valley and I recognized everything that I was looking at. Uh, because that's also part of it. It is, it's a business where we chronicle the city that we live in. So you get to see, oh, that's what used to be in that building. Oh, that's what used to be there. Oh, that's gone. Things like that. And isn't that, isn't that amazing? And that's one of the things that I, I like most about the, the business of set decoration um, and film. And if you create a space in in a in a time, someone can look at that and say, you know, with the exterior, and then with with what you've done, they can put the two to, together and say, oh yeah, that's the valley in the eighties. Right, right. You know, that's right. And it's amazing. Um, <clears throat> Ron so, Franco just posted an image of an old Victorian somewhere in L.A. that was all boarded up, that's getting ready to be demolished, and commented that he had filmed in it uh, when he did X Files. So. Um, that there, there's, there's a house that is now um, approaching the end of its life, but will get to live on in infinity um, because it was filmed in X-Files, you know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, back to Pretty Little Liars for a minute, because I, I really want to focus on the branding from a, from a set decorator standpoint. Do you, when you shop resources, when, you, when you're looking for resources and, and putting a, a space together. In this particular case, you had a deal with the Warner Brothers prop house. Correct. On other shows, what's the process? For those that aren't, you know, if there's a manufacturer that wants to get their product on set, how does one, how does one go about doing that? Is that part of, is that a, a part of the business? Do you get approached from manufacturers who say, hey, I would love to have our lamps on, on set? How does that work? Uh, rarely. Really? Rarely. Because you, you don't do it? Because you're not interested in it? Or because nobody contacts you? Um, because uh, probably all of the, all of them, all quite the above, on, all really? of the above. Um, but there, if someone is providing product for us to use, there is um, an expectation that there would be some acknowledgement, there would be something because their product is there. And that's not part of what a set decorator's job is. Um, where our job is not to promote the chair that the actor is sitting on or the lamp that is over their right or left shoulder. Um, it's there to tell the story in a very quiet, subtle, understated way. If you're paying attention to it, um, then I either have done my job correctly because the set is supposed to be a character or I've done my job incorrectly because you're paying attention to it and you should be paying attention to the words that the actor is saying. And, and I ask the question, from a pragmatic standpoint, I would think that, I, 
and maybe I'm completely off base on this, but I would think the more resources that you have from within which to draw to use on set, no matter how big a prop house may be, it's still going to be limited by the four walls and how many floors it's got and how much material is there for, from which to draw. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. At the same time, you aren't going to necessarily have the budget to go buy everything you want, nor the storage facility to, to house it. So if you, how, I guess that's the broader question for me, is how do you source outside of the prop house space? Outside of the prop house in other prop houses or going into the real world? Yes. Going, uh, going into the real world. Um, we, we go, we go around and we shop like real, like real people. Um, (laughs) um, but we're much easier customers because, uh, nine times out of 10, uh, we may say, is there a discount on it? Um, if there's not, it's like, it's the right piece. And if it's the right piece, then there it is and it's gone and we use it and we move on. Um, so there is not the... Uh, we're, we're very easy. Uh, industry people are very easy customers because we come in. We 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 have a very sp- specific vision on what we need. We might find a specific piece. We find the piece. We're out of there. Do you ever fabricate for a set? Uh, on on occasion, yes. And how do you? You're not a manufacturer. You're not a pro, You're not a product designer. It's outside of the space. What do you do if you can't find? the piece you're looking for? Well, there are um, a myriad of sources that exist for us that we can go to that can make anything. Um, if Sometimes we have to go outside of the confines of the studio world to um, go into the real world and have regular, regular manufacturers manufacture things for us, but there are many um, facilities that are available within the confines of the studio world uh, that manufacture anything that you need, whether it's in metal, um, upholstery, drapery, um, artwork, all of those things could be, you know, done in-house at Warner Brothers. All right, and I'm dying to know what the project is, so I'm going to be checking IMDb on a regular basis. Where can people go to see your work and to follow along? Do you like them better on social or the website? Uh, they can they can go to um, I'm on um, social media on Twitter at, at William D. Biazio, uh, or they can take a look at IMDb because my IMDb account is um, current with all projects. Not all projects, but hopefully it'll update. Uh, well, with- <laughs> these, um, um, all, all projects that I've signed deal memos on. <laughs> Outstanding, and we'll be looking for that one. William, thank you for the time. Pleasure, thank you. Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vendome Furniture. Design culture, it's the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. They create dialogue between environment and form. Vendome pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamour that is both unique and extraordinary. And isn't that what design is all about? creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest? Vendome products are simple and elegant, contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted, modern, durable, molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique and they beg to be enjoyed. They search the planet for the right designers that embody the Vendome spirit 
and work together to create remarkable pieces into an exclusively Van Damme mode of expression. And if you haven't seen Van Damme before, you can check them out in uh, some of the Convo by Design videos you'll find on our YouTube channel. But you can find them in their showrooms at the D&D Building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in LA, or online at vondom.com.